Hello, this is Joe and TJ with another episode of our One Thing series. Our desire is that our One Thing series truly helps you to lead better and grow faster. Every month on our podcast, we feature a great guest always on the topic of leadership and we blast it out to you from the schoolhouse302.com. Thank you, TJ. Please share this with other leaders you know that are looking and craving to get better. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Here we are with our guest, Tanya Sheckley. Thank you for being on the show, Tanya. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. This episode, we are focused on unconventional thinking, a different attitude, different behavior, ultimately for our students to reach greater levels of success. And we could not think of anyone better to have this conversation than with you. So we're fully appreciative of you being here. TJ, why don't you tell our audience a bit more about Tanya? Absolutely, Joe. Thanks for that. Tanya Sheckley is the founder and president of UP Academy, a progressive elementary lab school in San Mateo, California. UP Academy is reinventing education by customizing learning for each student, integrating project-based learning through its curriculum, and supporting students with disabilities to attend school alongside able-bodied students in mixed-aged classrooms. Inspired by the will, drive, and desire of her daughter, Eliza, who was born in 2009 with cerebral palsy, Tanya spent years studying brain injury and neuroscience. Tanya and her husband, Chris, worked with doctors, experts, therapists, and specialists to discover the best methods and systems for recovery and education for children with neuromotor challenges. When they could not find a school that fit their vision of education for Eliza, Tanya decided to create it. Tanya's vision and mission show it's possible to celebrate differences, change what's broken in the American education system, and that all children can receive a rigorous, well-rounded education. Tanya's success at building a micro school where all students are celebrated for their differences and contributions as they learn together, learn from each other, solve problems, and collaborate on a variety of interdisciplinary STEM-based projects has made her a go-to speaker not only on the future of education, project-based learning, neurodevelopment, and inclusion, but also on entrepreneurship, women in tech, and motherhood. Tanya also leads professional development programs for school administrators and educators who want to integrate inclusive project-based learning into their classrooms. Whether she's delivering a keynote Being interviewed by the media or answering questions on a panel or podcast, Tanya fuses powerful storytelling with keen, actionable recommendations, which we hope to get today for our listeners, rooted in research and experience. She's the host of the Rebel Educator podcast, where she interviews fellow education pioneers, school leaders and teachers, and students. She earned her BA in public health and dance from the University of Minnesota, Twin Cities, and her MBA in entrepreneurship from California Lutheran University. She's a certified yoga teacher, and she enjoys rock climbing, snowboarding, camping, going to local farmer's markets, and learning to play the piano. Okay, Tanya, tons of background experience here for today's show. You have a fascinating story, and we want to start there. It's not a traditional track to being a school leader. So if you could just begin with your journey and what it's like to found a school. Sure. Yeah. I didn't start an education. I don't have a, an education or a background in education. I spent almost a decade selling beer, which might be the opposite of working with small children. And then I had my own kids. And you know, as you talked about, my daughter Eliza was born with cerebral palsy. And so we spent 
the first several years of her life trying to figure out the best ways to help her overcome her brain injury and help her reach her potential. When we hit elementary school, it was very clear that the school system had very different ideas of the best way to educate students than we did. And we had a lot of really well-intentioned people, very well-educated, loving, caring people working with us, but it just wasn't the vision for what we knew was possible or for what we knew she could accomplish. And so we started looking for other ways and in searching really around the world for the right educational fit and something similar to what we were looking for, we didn't find it. And so we decided to start talking to people and talk about opening our own school and what that would look like. And so that journey, you know, as when you talk to people about starting a business, everybody will tell you that any business is difficult to start. And when you talk to people about starting a school, they will tell you that that is the most difficult business to possibly start. I've never been one to be deterred by people telling me something was difficult. So we charged ahead with that idea and with the idea that we could create an environment where all students can get what they need to be successful, where students can learn to work together to problem solve and collaborate with students of different abilities and different ages, and where we could really create a student-centered experience. So instead of focusing on the policies and the procedures that have been built over time, instead we're looking at the family and the child and what they need in this moment and figuring out if that's something we can provide and if we can't, how do we create the next best thing for them? So really looking at a student-centered experience and with all of the meaning that comes with that, not just centering the student in our classroom, but centering the student as a human and what they need. So creating differentiated learning, creating projects based on their interests, creating curriculum around current events and around the things that they're concerned about in their community and in their world and making all of these things really relevant to them in their learning so that school is fun and exciting and interesting and they get to do new and different things all the time while still building the knowledge and the skills they're going to need to be successful. So as a business owner, like it was definitely a unique journey because it's not as easy as opening a restaurant or opening an office where you're, you know, creating something. It's a lot of different zoning and different regulations and finding the right real estate and the right space to be able to even create something that's new and different and then finding the right educators and the right people to have the right vision to really support a shift and a change in the way we look at education and the way we look at young people. Tony, there's a lot of different directions we could go in. And I am fascinated by your profession within beer. I think that's another conversation at another time. But that is a world in which definitely TJ and I have discussed in the past. But something you said that I want to dig into a little further and just get your thoughts on, because most of our listeners aren't going to start a new school, whether it's like the UP Academy or even like a charter, they're in the system. TJ and I are in the system. We're district administrators, so people could even blame us more you know, for some of the bureaucracy that people would argue that is stifling. But you had indicated so many well-intentioned, loving individuals. What did you see as some of those initial barriers to what you and your husband were looking for, the vision you had? 
And how could we work to get rid of them without necessarily going in the direction you went with an entrepreneurial spirit, but within that system? And I think our listeners would love to hear something around that. Like, look, if they would have shifted the in this way or been able to do this more, it just would have helped. Do you have any thoughts on that? Because we're trying to also work within the system, which is what attracted us to your work being a rebel educator. Thoughts around that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are so many things that we can do on a really big level. You know, if we were going to shift the whole system, it would look like, you know, essentially almost eliminating special day classes, figuring out how to fully integrate those into the classroom, shifting from a schedule where our push-in therapists are working on their schedule and instead we're working around a student's schedule. And what I mean by that is with so many therapies with students with disabilities, our students are being pulled out for OT or PT or speech therapy, and they might be pulled out of English language arts or math or science to do that. And so now we have a student who it likely already takes them longer to complete the schoolwork that their peers are doing. And we're giving them less time because we're pulling them out for services, which are both super important, right? They need the academics and they need the services. So how can we relook at that system to create the services integrated within the school day? So maybe their speech and language pathologist is showing up during ELA and supporting that learning in time with the class and with the students. Or perhaps their PT is showing up during PE. So they're doing physical work at the same time their students or their peers are doing physical activity and supporting with, you know, as much or as little as they can integrate into that class, but at least doing the same thing at the same time. So they're not being pulled out of other academics to do that. And when you start to shift that to a student-centered approach and you start to take away some of the segregation of special day classes, which don't get me wrong, I know that there are students who need that specialized day class and they need that separation, but there are also students there who are there because frankly, we don't know what else to do with them. And so figuring out how to turn that special education teacher into a special education facilitator and have them working with the individual classroom teachers and working with classroom aides within those classrooms to be a trainer and a sounding board and an accessibility expert to be able to help the students who are struggling a little bit more through that curriculum and to integrate into those classes in a different and better way. Frankly, it shifts the whole framework of the school. But you also then have to allow time for these teachers to talk and to collaborate and to train, which means finding a way to take some of the workload off of our quite overstressed educators already. Because I'm sure there are teachers listening to this saying, wait, you want me to do one more thing and collaborate and create another accessible curriculum to have one or two more students in my class? Like, no, I don't have time for this. But from an administrator point, how do you give those educators that extra time to create that planning, to create that collaboration, to take the professional development or the training courses they need to really be able to support all of our students in a meaningful way? So on a big level, those are some ideas. In order to do that well, really taking our public school system and breaking them down into smaller community schools, like our school system as a whole in the U.S. has really turned into more of an industrial model where we're bringing in students, we're teaching them things day by day by day, and then we're pushing them out. And when we looked at our recent standardized test numbers here in San Mateo County, like 49% of our students aren't proficient in math at any given level. So whatever we're doing, either we've 
mixed up our standards and made them so high that our students can't reach them, or we're teaching in a manner that's not reaching our students because half of them aren't reaching proficiency in the things that we say that they should be. And so one of the ways to start to combat that and break that down is again, to give our teachers more time. And one of the ways to do that is to make our class sizes smaller. So if we can take our schools, break them into smaller schools where we have smaller class sizes, where we are more community-based and can be more responsive to the needs of our families and our community and our students, because it's just hard to do when you're a large school. You can't respond to every parent and every student and every need. And even as a small school, you can't do everything. But it gives you a lot more leeway and flexibility and fluidity to move when there are fewer moving parts. On a smaller level, you know, as an educator in a classroom, there are simple things that we can do to start to shift the culture and bring in more creativity and to build a sense of belonging in that class and making sure that we have community meetings and that we're asking students their opinions on things that are happening in the classroom and in their grade level and in their work, giving them some agency over the way that they show their learning. You know, maybe at the end of a science unit, I remember doing a diorama when I was in around fifth grade. And I loved my diorama. I spent hours on this thing. And it was something that I really got into. But I'm sure, especially now with technology where it is, which it wasn't like we got our first Apple IIe computer when I was in fifth grade, right? So that's my age. <laughs> but we can give students so many different ways to show their learning. It doesn't need to be a diorama. It could be a stop motion video. It could be a video of them talking. It could be an essay and a report. It could be a small drama project that they put on with three other kids and each of them are a different dinosaur showing what the dinosaurs did in that period of time. As educators, we can give our students lots of different choices of how they show learning, of agency over things in the classroom, of where things in the class could be, of taking on student jobs and how they take responsibility, and creating things like a wonder wall in our classroom so they can ask questions that we validate, can show their ideas and their questions are important, and we go through there, you know, once a week for half an hour or every two weeks for half an hour and just look at the questions on the wonder wall so the students are getting an opportunity to ask all the questions that aren't in the curriculum but that are on their mind. So that's from a really high level to a, a classroom level, a few ideas. Thank you for that, Tanya. I'm going to just come back to a couple of things that you said. So you talked about shifting the whole framework of the school, including the school day. You talked about breaking down the school into smaller communities. And you said changing the culture. I wonder if we could go back to the concept of rebel educator, and you could tell us a little bit more about that and why you landed on, on that part. Because a lot of school leaders who are listening today, Joe alluded to it before, they're working within a system, they're working within a traditional school. Some of them have a desire to create a change. We know that's going to bring upon us the conflict that's necessary to see through to that change. But I think there's still some fear in some cases. I don't know how in other cases. How do we land on being rebels? How do we land on putting pressure in the system to make those things change so it is more student-centered, so it does meet the needs of students, so way more than 50% of our kids are meeting the standard, which by the way, in some states, that'd be a good number. Yeah, which I don't know why parents aren't outraged about this. Like, oh, it's just cool that half of us aren't hitting proficiency. Like, I'm flabbergasted that more people aren't upset and like understanding that, 
know, I feel like there are individual parents who are like, oh, well, my child's not doing well in math or my child's not doing well in ELA. But then when you look at the numbers and you realize it's not just your child, it's like half of children aren't doing well in math and aren't doing well in ELA. And yeah, this is post-pandemic, but the numbers pre-pandemic aren't much better. It's like three percentage points difference. Like, so like that should be a really big problem, but that wasn't your question. <laughs> your question was around how do we become rebel educators? And the idea of being a rebel educator is just pushing that status quo and really questioning tradition. So when there's something that we're doing within our school district, asking ourselves, why are we doing this? Who is it supporting or who's getting the advantage from this? And is there a better way to do it? And when we start to look at a lot of the research around ways that we teach, around education, around homework, like so many schools are still giving homework and all of the research says this is useless. Like we know that children's brains integrate learning when they run and play and when they do imaginative play and when they're on the playground and when they're swinging and when their body's moving. And yet for some reason as a school, we send them home with worksheets and this is supposed to help them in some way. And so looking at where the research is and what are the things that we're doing and can we question why we're doing them? And then starting with, you know, one or two things. It doesn't need to be a full school culture shift. Like we're going to go from traditional learning where every student has a desk to open student spaces and everyone collaborating and project-based learning. Like that's not going to happen overnight. But what is the thing that you want to focus on that you can make a small shift this year? And then who are, you know, from a superintendent view, okay, we want to make a change. Who are those principals that are interested in making a change? And then within those schools, who are those educators who have either have experience doing that work, have some professional development in that way, or are interested in moving in that direction and finding those teacher, I call them activators, right? And just starting with that pilot program of these are the few shifts we want to see in the classroom and the school. We're going to start it here. And as we start to see the culture change and as we start to see differences in the classroom and in the students and in the curriculum and in the learning and the way it operates, suddenly other educators take note and go, oh, wow, what are you doing in your classroom that's different? Your students are talking in a different way. They're asking different kinds of questions. They always seem happy. You know, whatever it is that's the change that they notice, suddenly other educators become interested in that. And that's when you can build it more of the school or a full school initiative. And then once you have the full school in one spot, then you can make that a district-wide, right? So it's starting with that simple question of what are we doing? Why are we doing it? Like really, why are we doing it? And can we do it better? And the why are we doing it is one that I ask educators a lot about curriculum too. And I love to use the example of memorizing state capitals. Like why are we doing that? And if I ask you guys right now, like what's the state capital of Montana? Can you tell me? Well, Google can. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> And so we had that but conversation some point. yeah with like the periodic table all of that time like if we can research it and the tool is for the kid to be able to find out just where to get it you know i'd much yeah. rather them you know work with that information you know than necessarily learn how to research and find it then use it not necessarily memorize and occupy mental space that's unnecessary i really appreciate you saying about the small shift I think there's genius in that. I love the idea also of the activators because there are a lot of people willing to do things that really can start small, generate momentum, do wonderful things. And I also don't want to miss, and you just made me think of this when you were talking, because I think we could do it more. My son took a photography class a couple of years ago. All the homework was 
pictures, right? He had to go out with his camera, but it was like silly stuff. It was like the fall, like take a picture of a leaf. But I think we could do things like that also with like writing in ELA, go outside, describe the tree that you see or describe an area that's changing. And I think really starting to be a little more, you know, intentional about making the work relevant and meaningful, I think is a game changer, at least for these type of learners who really care. You know, Tani, you've mentioned quite a bit and you've said some things that have really sparked ideas in my own head. Shifting gears a little bit, who is an individual, a person or group you follow for either knowledge or inspiration? This is one of the questions that I overthought. <laughs> yeah, honestly, like one of the places that I look to, I don't want to give social media too much credit, but I'm a part of a women's founders group on Facebook. And that group of women always has interesting questions interesting problems that they're facing in their business and really interesting ideas for new things that either they want to create in the world or that they're beta testing or that they're looking for feedback on. And so having a group like that, and they're not education focused, this is all sorts of entrepreneurs, women entrepreneurs in all sorts of different areas, but just seeing how differently they're looking at so many different aspects of the world and of business is really inspiring and frankly, just really interesting to me. Like I love seeing how people are disrupting an industry or how people are looking at a problem from a different perspective. And so that also helps me to look at the things that I'm facing or working on in a different manner. Right. I can look at how someone's approached a problem in a clothing industry, and maybe we can approach something in education from a similar viewpoint. And how does that change the way we looked at it? So I'd say being, you know, I'm citing this specific Facebook group, but definitely just being around other entrepreneurs in a wide variety of industry or other leaders that are facing similar problems. That's an interesting answer, Tanya. It reminds me, Joe, of the fact that when we wrote Seven Mind Shifts for School Leaders, we really were looking for stories from industry about people who had challenged a system from the inside out. We featured Zappos, we featured Spanx. And it was because in education, we couldn't find that real break of the mold. And we wanted to feature that as the mind shift. But it, it reminds me of like, okay, these people have really interesting questions and they're trying to change the status quo of their industry. That is the rebel educator that we need to come out in all of us. So it's cool because for me, it just reminds me to say, maybe what we're talking about is thinking like entrepreneurs, that more educators need to think like entrepreneurs and learn from an entrepreneurial spirit. Tanya, what's one thing that people should try to do on a regular basis that might make a difference in their day or life? This is going to sound really cliche, but exercise, moving our body helps to keep our mind moving. And I absolutely notice it when I stop my exercise habits or my personal routines. Like if I'm not walking and running in the morning, my brain thinking gets sluggish as well. And there's a real connection between our mind and our body. And you know, the old bodies in motion, stay in motion is true in so many ways and with that connection. And so finding a way to 
do whatever it is that you love. Like we don't need to be lifting weights. We don't need to be running. We don't need to be trying to become a bodybuilder or lose 30 pounds or any of those things, but just finding a way that you love to move your body and get some exercise out in the world creates such a shift of mental health and of focus. Yeah. I couldn't agree more with that, Tanya. If you wouldn't mind you know, you're busy, you're successful, you have a family, you're an entrepreneur, you run a school. You know, how do you work that into your day? I know you just said in the morning, so I caught that. But I also find it fascinating. Is there anything you do in the evening to prepare for that? Because I think it's a slingshot. I think we always focus about the AM, but I'm kind of on a kick right now, like where my last 90 minutes of the evening matter almost just as much as the first 90 minutes of my morning. I've really been focused on that. But is there things you do to make sure that stays a priority in your life, whether you organize it a certain way or just make it, you know, look, this is something I do. Yeah, I mean, I've definitely found on a weekly basis, like by Friday afternoon, my brain is fried. I'm not creating anything new. I'm not focusing on stuff. But what I can do is look at my schedule over the week, look at what I got done on my to-do list, look at what my priorities are for next week. And so I fill in as much of the time blocks of my schedule of the following week as I can on Friday afternoon so that that's done and off my mind for the next week. But then on a daily basis, I mean, honestly, I have two small kids. So when I leave school, it's cooking dinner, it's finishing up laundry, it's helping them make sure that they're ready with all of their after school stuff for the next day. So I'm not scrambling trying to find their stuff in the morning and helping them with those executive functioning skills as they're building it. And for me to do the same thing. And then, you know, quite honestly, as I mentioned, I do work out in the morning. That's the time that I've carved out that I know I'm not going to get interrupted and that I can work out consistently. So I'm up between five and five thirty and I work out and I walk and I run in the morning before I get my kids up at six thirty and then get started for the day. But the best way to prepare for that is to go to bed. Like I am in bed between eight and eight thirty at night. I'm the first one in the family asleep at night. Because I also don't function well if I don't get at least seven, but generally eight to nine hours of sleep is where I function the best. And so if I'm getting up at 530, that means I'm asleep by nine and making sure that that is consistent and that I'm turning everything off and that I can actually go to bed and get rest at night so that I can wake up and get my day started. Thank you. I appreciate you mentioning that. That's huge. <laughs> I think people underestimate that. I'm not good at getting to bed early. Both my wife and I are night owls, which does not help. But I do not think you can ever get enough sleep or rest, especially if you're pushing every day. Tanya, what's one thing that you want to know or be able to do that you don't already? You mentioned in my introduction that I was learning to play piano, which I was before the pandemic, and then... Zoom piano lessons worked as well for me as Zoom school worked for the majority of kids. So that fell to the wayside quickly. I've always wanted to learn the piano and I have started and stopped so many times in my life. And it's one of those things like as an entrepreneur, when you look at the businesses that are the most successful, you know, we're not all going to be Sarah Blakely, right? But the people who are successful are the ones who just didn't stop. They kept going. They didn't give up. They're not necessarily the hardest working. They're not burning the candle at both ends. They're not always the smartest in the room, but they're the ones that just keep going day after day after day after day after day and figuring out the problems and figuring out the solutions. 
And that's the thing that I have not done with learning how to play piano. <laughs> I have failed miserably at that. I have started and stopped so many times and I still cannot play the piano. Although there is now a digital piano in my living room because I have this aspiration of being a musical family. Well, it's a great aspiration. You can't imagine the number of our guests that say something about flying, like a helicopter or an airplane, or learning either a language or an instrument. It's unbelievable how many leaders come on the show and say one of those two things. So yeah, I'd also love to learn Spanish. And I watched Top Gun way too many times as a kid and wanted to be a fighter pilot. But <laughs> Well, there's still room for all three, right? Fighter pilot, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, at least a pilot, a piano player, <laughs> and Spanish. How about this? You've done a lot and you continue to grow as a leader. That's obvious from the book, from this podcast, from your podcast. What continues to support your growth that others might be able to replicate? Find a good coach or coaching group. That is the one thing that has truly made a difference in the way that I lead, in the way that I grow as the organization grows, and in the ideas that we come up with, honestly, and thinking outside the box, like all of the mentorship groups and coaching groups that I've been a part of, none of them have been education focused. And so I'm always trying to learn from people in other industries and figure out how we can run the best organization and create the best methodology of education that's really going to support our learners, not just in education, but in the world. And in order to do that, we have to get out of education and look at what's happening in the world. But I was always a kid, you know, you, you asked a little bit about where Rebel came from. And I feel like educators kind of come from two different buckets. Either they were terrible at school and they hated it. So they became an educator to fix it and change it. Or they were good at school and they loved it. And they became an educator because they've always loved it. And that's the thing that they do. And they're good at it. Right. I fall a little bit in that ladder bucket. School was super easy for me. I sailed through. I realized pretty early on that I didn't have to focus or do much and I could get A's without really trying much. And so I had always wanted to have this sort of rebel persona because I wasn't a rebel because it was just <laughs> I was the other end of that spectrum. And so looking at, you know, how we shift things, how we change things and how we can each be a rebel in our own way. Tanya, can you say a little bit about how you find a coach or a coaching group? Because I know that's the first question our listeners are going to ask. Like, okay, I want to coach. And Joe and I, we do coaching. We run some coaching groups. We're very familiar with masterminds. I really like the idea that your group is not necessarily educators. I think that's huge for our listeners right now. And they're thinking, I want to coach. Where would you point them? Or well, even clearly how? to you and Joe. <laughs> Good. We appreciate that. Yeah. Or to me, like, I'm also happy to help you. No, but if you're looking for something outside in the world, honestly, I found my first coach on Facebook. She was running really great ads and her question, her copy resonated with me and I reached out. But I was also in touch with her for almost five years before I joined her coaching network. And this was kind of Part of it because I was an entrepreneur, I was independent, I was always good at everything that I did. And so I was like, why do I need a coaching group? What is this for? And then the deeper I got, the more I realized just how much I was gaining from the coach and from the community. So honestly, my first one just came to me in a Facebook ad. But from there, after having a coach and having a community and having that support, I got a really good understanding of what they were doing and what they could provide for me and with me and 
what I was missing and what I needed in my next phase of growth. And so once you have that clarity over what is it that you want to learn, what kind of people do you want to be surrounded with, and what kind of outcome do you want from this group, then you can search individual coaches or individual spaces or organizations and look for the places and the people that are going to provide those things. And one of the best ways to do that is to ask your network, like, hey, I want to get better at X, Y, Z. Like my last coaching was a lot in communication. It was in leadership. It was in copywriting. It was in speaking. I wrote the book. I launched the podcast. I started a keynote speaking career, right? So those are all the things that I went to that coach in that group for. I'm like, okay, well, now my school is up and running, but we're really in a growth phase. And I need to find people who have taken an organization, put it through growth, scaled it, and is really, you know, less focused on the marketing and the message and more focused on the business and the scaling. So how do I find that group of people? And then reaching out to my network and saying, this is what I'm really focused on right now. Who do you have that you can recommend? Who's good at this? Who's done this? And then weeding through those options and suggestions. Thank you so much for that, Tanya. I really appreciate you saying that there's multiple avenues to go down depending on what you're looking for. So thank you for that. Tanya, our final question, and you've pushed the boundaries in so many different ways. And, you know, it's not something I think you even fall into this category. So I'm really interested in your response. What's one thing that you used to think that you don't think anymore? I did struggle with this one when I got the questions. This was the other one that I was overthinking. I mean, there are so many things that I used to think that I don't think anymore. I think the one that's most blatant and possibly most shocking is that I didn't like kids most of my adult life. Like I never would have chosen education as a career, which is maybe how I ended up in beer, right? There are no kids in beer. And so even as a snowboard instructor, the instructors who taught kids made a lot more money because they got incentives and bonuses when their kids came back day after day after day after day. And teaching adults, typically they come, they take a lesson, maybe two, and they're off on their own and they'll figure it out, right? But I would have much rather worked with the adults than the kids because I just really didn't like kids most of my adult life. And then I watched a girlfriend have them. I tell the story in my book, actually, of watching her daughter and visiting. And her daughter, you know, was tiny and an infant and a baby. And then I came to visit one day and she was starting to take steps. And that was pretty cool to see her up and moving and walking, but she was still you know, unstable as babies and toddlers are taking a few steps and falling over and taking a few steps and falling over. And I had another trip out there to see her about three weeks later. And so I, you know, I said goodbye. I came back three weeks later and her daughter was running around the house and not only running, but trying to figure out ways to dodge around her legs to get through into the kitchen, like through the hallway passageway. And so not only stable and running, but also problem solving and really being creative in the ways that she was figuring things out. And I was just like, wow, watching this little human develop in the course of a month, right? Barely able to walk to literally problem solving how to get around her mom's legs to get to what she wanted was fascinating and amazing to me. And I realized that this was something that I should probably have in my life. And now the more kids that I meet and the more kids I have the privilege of working with and getting to know, the more I see just how differently they view the world. And this is something like as educators and as administrators, like when we ask our students, so much of the time 
the world is new to them, right? Like we're jaded by what we've learned, by our experiences, by our policies, by our procedures, by the way that we think things should be done, by the way things always have been done, because we're old enough to know all of those things, which in one way is a great advantage because we have this experience. On the other hand, it's a really big disadvantage because our thoughts and our ways of viewing things are really clouded by all of those lenses that we have to look through to try to get to a solution. And when you ask a five-year-old, they don't know any of that stuff. They're just like, oh, well, you need a solution to this. Why don't you do it this way? And we can come up with 10 reasons why that won't work, or we can try it and see if it does. Because now we have this little human who has a totally wide open, broad perspective because they have no idea of the things that are not possible, which has been really amazing and fun. And I just like, I get excited to hang out with the kids every day. So going from like never wanting kids telling my mother that my black Labrador was the only grandchild she was ever getting to, I've run an elementary school. So. <laughs> That's a great journey and a nice change of heart and a great place to end the podcast, Tanya. Is there anything else that you would like to add for our listeners today? I mean, there's one thing that's on my mind from this conversation that I didn't get a chance to dig into. And that was Joe's example of photography and taking a picture of a leaf and then using it for ELA and going out and writing about the tree. And it really made me think about how we develop projects and project-based learning. And one of the projects that my daughter did as a kindergartner was on trees and they became dendrologists, which as a kindergartner, that's a really cool word to know because you go home and you tell your parent you're a dendrologist and your parent goes, you're a what? And then you get to explain to them that you're studying trees, but they went out and looked at trees three different times during the year, which even in California, the trees change and they lose their leaves and they change colors and they get their leaves back. And so they went out and did bark rubbings and looked at the leaves and what color they were and how big the tree was and outlined them and took pictures of them. But when you really draw this into an even bigger project, you can do it in ELA and you can do creative writing around the tree and you can do perspective writing on what the tree sees every day. And you could do a narrative writing about the tree's life and turn that into a whole history project, depending on how old the tree is and the things that it's lived through and the parts, things that it may have seen on its street during those time periods. And you could do a math project. I mean, from a simple thing of like how many leaves are on this branch and how many branches are on the tree, how many leaves do you think might be on the tree, right? To how many veins are in the leaf or looking at it from science of how do trees get energy? How do they live? Do they breathe? Are they alive? Do they talk to other trees? Like we just watched a whole documentary about trees talking to each other and like the queen tree in the forest and how she oversees and sends out literally like chemical responses through the dirt to the other trees around them when there are dangers and things happening. Like it's fascinating. And it made me like question vegetarianism. I'm like, is there anything on the planet that I can eat? Because <laughs> everything talks to each other and everything's alive. But like drawing it back, when you start to look at how you can develop learning and how you can make it really interesting and how you can create projects, you know, you can take a photography lesson and turn it into math and English language arts and science and all of these things. And all we did was look at the tree outside of our window. Like imagine what you could do with all of the rest of the world. So that, that's my two cents on project-based learning. <laughs> I think it's a great two cents on curriculum development, quite frankly. And the way that we think about interdisciplinary studies and just, I mean, I hope it's not lost on the listeners, but that tree is outside. It's not inside the four walls of our classroom. And some of the richest learning experiences are going to be outside of our schools, not inside of them. 
Thank you, Tanya. There you have it. Another great podcast. Don't forget to follow our blog, theschoolhouse302.com for blog posts, podcasts, video blogs, always on the topic of leadership. And we hope you enjoyed this one thing series on how school leaders can push boundaries, create student-centered learning, become a rebel educator, and so much more with Tanya Sheckley. Tanya, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Hey leaders, before you go, one more announcement. We now have available for you our candid and compassionate feedback masterclass. Really, because of high demand, we are thrilled to offer this. This is a course that we run live and in person all the time, and leaders love it. They learn to give feedback with skills that they can use right away, including better praise to lift and celebrate your team. It's now available in a virtual online format that you can take on your own, self-paced, from the comfort of your office or home. Here's what you'll get. There are 11 lessons with a focus on nine candor cancellations that we wrote in our Candid and Compassionate Feedback book. These are mistakes that leaders make that we don't want you to make anymore. We'll teach you models so that your feedback is meaningful and we'll give you tools necessary to build the culture that you always wanted. Trust us, without these critical skills, you're not capitalizing on your own capacity to lead better and grow faster. Go to the site, theschoolhouse302.com, click on shop courses, add this course to your cart and start learning today. Mm -hmm.